Welcome back. Um, Rudolph has been in, been in hospital. Good to see you back with us, my dear brother, and uh, trust the Lord continues his healing work in your body. So great to have you. Hey, John, Dean, good to see you guys as, as well. Let's pray and, um, and then we'll open up God's word. Last, last week, you may or may not have heard, but we um, um, did a formal announcement, which was very, very difficult to hear, of uh, Sam and Andrea Scott's resignation. Uh, Sam and I, um, morning and evening, uh, had, had penned a bit of a joint statement, which, which just allowed us to kind of share our, share our hearts a little bit. Um, and we understand that there were, there were many questions around that. There were things that we could answer. There were things that we couldn't answer. Our heart's desire as a leadership team is to um, personally honour everybody involved in the, in the situation. But we do understand that there are questions. And we wanted to just reiterate again um, a good and appropriate manner for, for asking those questions. Um, that is to firstly seek out a member of the leadership team somebody on the church council, maybe if you don't know who they are, that's okay, come and ask a pastoral team member and we'll point you in the right direction. And, and we would love to, love to kind of give you as much information as we, as we can and is, is helpful about that. We'll also, the council, be sending out a letter this week too. Should come to your letterbox. If it doesn't and you'd like a copy of that, come and see us or ring the office and we'll make sure that you get a copy of that letter as well and keep you as informed as, as we're able to do. Well, with that in mind, I wanted to, and we will pray in just a moment and commit this time to the Lord, but wanted to sort of just talk a little bit about, you know, tonight, well, where, where to from here? And I shared last week a little bit of a picture that I'd had. It's a picture of a, I'll share it again, and maybe you remember it, but it was a, of a large open field, and, and right in the middle was, was a cross, right in the center. And around the cross was a you know, a, a fairly large expanse, an area where, you know, it was very, very safe to be and to move around freely and, and so forth. But not everybody necessarily was drawn to the cross. For various reasons, they were drawn sometimes to the, to the outskirts, to places around the boundaries and the edge of things where there seemed to be little traps and snares set and so forth. And the significance of the picture, I believe, was, was a calling back to the, to the cross once more, that that's the safe place for us to be as a church. And so in some respects, this evening's message is a very, very simple one. It's, it's all around the Lord's Supper. It's all around communion. Come back to the cross. Come back to the altar. Come back to that Christ-centeredness which unites us and defines us as one body. We sometimes, don't we, instead of the Lord's Supper, it can be called the, the Eucharist, grace. It can be also, also called communion, meaning a, a, a common unity or a, a shared meal together that we do in Christ Jesus. So I'll introduce that in just a moment, but that's what we'd like to, to do. We, we did that at our various campuses, Hurstbridge and Altham this morning, and we just thought it'd be very fitting to do that um, again tonight. Would you join me in prayer, and, and let's just commit this time to the Lord. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you for all of your promises, and we thank you that we can claim a, a few of them tonight, wherever two or three are gathered in your name, you're there with them, in their midst, very, very special sense of your presence we can claim because of that promise. And we are here tonight 
In your name, Jesus. We can thank you for your presence not only amongst us but within us through your Holy Spirit. You said, Jesus, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. You'll never do that. You promised to send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, the one who dwells within us. And and so we have your peace and your counsel and your comfort dwelling right within us through the Spirit of Christ. We thank you for that as well. And you commanded us with regards to the Lord's Supper to take these symbols of bread and wine and to use them to remind us of your blood which was shed for us and your body which was broken for us in order to to reconcile us to the Father and to one another. And as we partake of these things in, in just a little bit, we want to celebrate their significance and the truth which is symbolized within these two very simple but very powerful elements. You have also given us your word. The Holy Spirit, would you please come and minister to us through your word. I invite you to just take a moment and turn your heart to Father. And welcome him to speak into your life this evening by his spirit through his word and to minister to the deep part of you as is his desire. Jesus, we thank you for hearing our prayers. We thank you for answering. Thank you that we can claim your promises and your promises are always based on your name. And so we pray these things in the wonderful matchless name of Jesus Christ. And all the Lord's people said, what did they say? Oh, amen. <laughs> they did say it. You just didn't. You have covered. We covered. Turn with me in your Bibles. To Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 11 to verse, verse 22. Chapter 2, verse 11 through to verse 22. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. And amongst the church, there were both Jews and Gentiles. And, and it seems that even though they were both brothers and sisters in Christ and they were aware of the promises that were now theirs through Christ Jesus, they were struggling a little bit to put aside some of the old racial barriers that had divided them for, for so long. And Paul is writing to them to address that. Verse 11, he says, Therefore... Remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, 
excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Well, Paul is sort of saying in this passage, he's referring to three things. Firstly, he's referring to what, what you were in the past, in the past tense, Remember what you were. Then he goes and he takes them on a little bit of a journey and he, he now reminds them of what you are, what you are now. Then he takes that a step further and he starts to talk about what we are, meaning we, the plural, the church. This is what you were. This is what you are. This is what we are. The first bit, this is what you were. Years and years ago, Many, many years ago, I um, used to teach youth workers, youth pastors and so forth. It was a, it was a course called Tent Makers Youth Ministry, and, and part of it involved public speaking. We'd get everybody up to sort of, you know, tell some stories and things. But part of it um, was also trying to connect once more with what did it actually mean to be a teenager? Because by the time you're, you're doing training to be a youth pastor or something, you're in, your, you're in your 20s and some of the worries and concerns and so forth, they're way behind you. And, and so we'd do this little exercise where we'd say, hey, remember when? And we'd start out early, we'd sort of, you know, remember when you got your license. For some of you, you can't remember when because it hasn't happened yet. But, but we'd get these youth workers to remember when. And then we'd go way, way, way back to, hey, do you remember your first day of high school? Remember that day. Remember what it felt like when you walked onto the, the big campus of the school and so forth. And, and then we'd kind of go way, way back to a childhood memory. And we'd ask a whole series of questions and, you know, such as, you know, what street was it that you grew up on? Do you remember the house? Do you remember what the front yard looked like and what the backyard looked like? Uh, do you remember what school did you go to? How did you get there and how did you come home again? Who was, who was one of your favourite teachers and, and why were they a favourite teacher? What was one of the really significant moments you had as a young person at school? And, and what, what made that kind of special? What did you love to have for lunch? What would your lunchbox look like? What would your school bag look like? 
Who were your closest friends? What did you do during your lunch hour? And so on. We would just keep asking these questions until, until all of these youth workers would, would slowly kind of reconnect with some of what had happened. Yeah, way, way, way back then. Some good memories, some not so good. Well, it seems that's what Paul is doing here too. He's taking all of the Christians here and he's saying, hey, remember when? He's taking them back. Remember when you were? And then he takes them to a part of their life that they will probably sooner forget. Remember a time when you didn't know God? Remember a time when spiritually you were dead? Remember back when you were far away from God and none of his promises could be claimed by you because you didn't even know what they were. He talks about them as as being separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel there in verse 12, foreigners to the covenants of the promise. He sums it up by saying, remember when you were, and these words would sting, without hope and without God. Remember when? It's not a nice memory, is it? In fact, just to really make it vivid, earlier in chapter 2, verses 1 and following, this is how he describes it. Back then, when you didn't know God, Back then, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the the kingdom of the air, the spirit, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Let me just stop there for a moment. But we didn't think that, did we? Back before we knew God, back before we were Christians, believers, back before Jesus Christ had entered our life and snatched us from from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom, from death to life. Back before then, did we actually think we were serving Satan? Did we think that we were serving the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work? In the, no, we, we didn't think that. We had no idea. But that's what it was. That's what was happening. That's the truth of it. Paul, this stunning, stunning little kind of remember when, he takes us on a journey Remember when and now, in fact, you have new eyes to see just how dark that darkness really was. It's not a pleasant thought. But why does he do that? Well, he takes them back to think about all of these things, how they used to live among, you know, at one time just gratifying the cravings of their flesh and following its desires and thoughts like the rest, deserving the wrath of God. He takes them back to that moment Because nothing quite levels all of us, does it? Then remembering what we were without Jesus Christ. But he doesn't leave them there, of course. Wallowing in guilt and shame. He quickly moves them on and he says, remember what you were without Jesus. But now remember what you are in Jesus And he says, but now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He says in in verse 19, if you just want to jump over a little bit, consequently, because you've been brought near, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but you are now fellow citizens with God's people, and also, in fact, members of his actual household. 
your family now. Because of Jesus Christ, your family, part of the family of God. You have a whole new identity. You should not see yourself as you once did what you were, but you should now see yourself as who you are in Jesus Christ. When we had our first son, Daniel, um, like every parent, we're overwhelmed, uh, sleepless nights, um, uh, nappies, all sorts. Of, it, was, it was horrendous and yet at the same time filled with so much joy. We just couldn't believe this incredible little miracle that God had gifted us with. We felt so responsible. We felt overwhelmed. We felt delighted. But, but another feeling came to mind And that was this, you couldn't be a parent, not like we now were, even just a a few months in, and suddenly with your world turned upside down, forget about your baby. It's just impossible. So that got me thinking about something, because, well, all of us are born, yes, but I was actually born and then chosen. I was adopted as a child. And it got me thinking about my adoption. I was adopted very, very young, just four, four weeks of age, talking to my dad about it the other day and just, just praying together and marveling over the good thing that God had done. But it, but it got me thinking, particularly when we had Daniel way back then, it got me thinking somewhere, somewhere there is a woman, biologically speaking, my mother. Surely from what I've experienced in this very, very short time as a parent, surely she must wonder from time to time whatever did happen to that little baby that I I put up for adoption. So we prayed about it for quite some time and then we finally felt, you know what? I think for all the right reasons, as best as I can understand it, we should reach out and we should try and find out who she is and where she is and just basically say, hey, it went well, thank you. It went well. Thank you very much. And so we started a little bit of a process. Firstly, we approached my real parents, Daryl and Evelyn Hunt, and, and just very much with a, if, you, if you're not happy with this, if you don't feel okay with it, it stops there. But they were very happy with it, and they gave us our blessing. And, and so I, I filled in some paperwork and made an appointment with what was then the Department of Social Security. And the way that it all happened was, was you kind of had this group time, this session, and I remember going into the city to some, some of their offices somewhere and sitting around in a, in a large circle. I think there were 15, 20 of us. And we all had that one thing in common. We had all been adopted. Now, I was probably the oldest person there. And, uh, and I looked around the room and, and it was all these, you know, very young people. And I actually, oh, I could see that some of them weren't doing well. And I wondered in my heart how this is going to go for them. And I checked my reasons and motivations again. You know, am I doing this out of curiosity or am I doing it because I really want to bless the heart of my biological mother? And I thought, yeah, it, really, that is it. I don't think there's any curious thought in my mind whatsoever. So I kind of thought, well, let's, let's keep going with it. I feel a prompting of God to do that. And they started handing around all of these files. And, and, and in this file, of course, would be, I didn't know exactly what, but I guess information about the adoption and the adoption process and so forth. And so, so they're handing around these files and they hand me mine, but it's got the wrong name on it. And so I, so I actually said, excuse me, and I handed it back to them. And just as they turned around, 
I realized, oh, this is mine. I, I just had another name that had never occurred to me before. Some point I was born, I was given another name. I actually have another identity. It was a surreal moment. It was a bizarre thing. And I remember taking that file back and just, th- uh, and I said, oh, it's okay. And I remember just looking at it and checking the birth date and thinking, wow, I actually have another name and identity. And then I thought, but no, I don't. I know who I am. I'm Stuart Hunt. I'm the son of Daryl and Evelyn, who loved me very, very much. And it was in that moment that I realized I don't need this file. I will use it so that I can bless my biological mother, but I don't need it. I know who I am. You know, as Paul is is talking to the Christians there in Ephesus, he's saying, remember what you once were, but don't dwell on that, because that is no longer who you are. Somebody may hand you a file and say, this is who you really are. This is your identity. But no, in Christ Jesus, you now have a new identity. You know who you are. There is an accuser, Satan. He's very, very busy. He's endlessly trying to persuade you and I that we are not who God says we are. As I say, very, very busy. He spends all of his time accusing each of us and and putting together, as it were, like a little patchwork quilt of sin and guilt and shame. And he takes everything that he can find about your life. He, he loves to drag up through the past every little bit of information he can get. Some of it absolutely false and some of it with an ounce of truth. Whatever, it doesn't stop him. He is the father of lies after all. And he puts together very, very carefully this patchwork quilt. He passes it off as a coat and he said, ha ha, this is the coat that you should be wearing. Paul would say, no, it isn't. There is a coat that you should wear. Isaiah describes it as a robe, a splendid, beautiful robe of righteousness. It appears again in the teachings of Revelation, and we understand from Revelation that this this pure, spotless robe belongs to all those who are God's people, all of the saints. We look at that and we think, oh, I could never wear something like that. That belongs on Jesus. Something so beautiful and so splendid and so magnificent, that belongs only on Jesus. Only he could ever wear such a robe. And look, it fits him perfectly. But he takes that and he says, yes, this is mine. I'm gifting it to you. You are to wear this. This is how I see you. This is how your heavenly Father sees you. And this, I'm interceding on your behalf is how I want you to see yourself as well. I need you to say no to the other coats that people offer you in this life. In fact, I I need you to say no to the one that you've even been sewing together, that, that careful robe of reputation that you've put together for yourself because the evil one can attach his little patchwork quilt to that as well. I need you to take all of that off That's not who you are. I need you to wear this. This is who you are. This is what defines you. 
And so Paul says, remember what you were, but don't dwell on that. Remember now what you are and walk in that. Put on that robe of righteousness. Say no to the accuser. I am not going to wear that coat. I will just wear the robe that the Lord has given to me. Remember what you were. Remember what you now are. Now, remember what we are together. What we, brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, remember what we are. In verse 14, he says, For he himself is our, our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility that used to stand between us. Some of you may or may not have, have been around for when the Iron Curtain fell. It was a, a wall, and, and in particular, as it, as it went through Berlin, it divided East and West Germany. In 1991, uh, finally, under, under pressure from the masses, the communist regime in, in East Germany decided this is unsustainable. And they opened up the borders for the very first time and allowed you to cross back and forth. Now, of course, you can imagine, if you had lived in in communist East Germany, in poverty and in the gloom of that situation, and you suddenly realised you could have free passage. The walls had come down. There were no longer guards and, and dogs and spotlights. You could actually go, you would run for West Germany, wouldn't you? Start a new life for yourself. Be reunited with, with friends and family. And that was the reality for many people. That's That's fact. Let me now launch into a little bit of fiction for a moment. Use your imaginations. Imagine that you lived in East Germany. Imagine that you had a house and it was, you could visually, you could see across the border. You could see across the wall. You could see the day that the war came down and stunned you looked across into West Germany and, and you couldn't believe it. The economy was stronger. It was flourishing. It was a place that you want to be. Uh, there were parks and gardens, and, and as the walls came down and people moved freely between the two, the restoration of West Germany was much faster than that of East Germany. Maybe you were able to see a, a patisserie grow up on the street next door, and you, could, you just marveled at, at baked goods that you hadn't seen in so long. And then a, a reputable dentist, maybe a doctor in a cafe, and everything inside you said, I want to go across there. But mentally, you pretended in your mind that there was still a war dividing you. Friends, family could look at you and say, come on, you've got to <laughs> come with us. We're going over to the park. Oh, I could never go over there, you might say. There's a line and I've never passed it yet and I won't pass it now. You'd miss out on so much, wouldn't you? the reunification of Germany. You'd miss it all. And Paul is saying, I don't want you to miss out on all of the blessings that God has in store for his people, his church. Because I have taken down the dividing walls of hostility. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female. There are no longer these, these barriers between you. There's no us and them. There are no sides. All of us were once dead to our transgressions. All of us through the cross, bridged over from death to life, all of us are now a part of God's family. 
It is impossible within the family of God for there to be a wall of division. Father just won't allow it. If we see one, we see it in our imaginations. And we miss out on everything that that God has in store for us. Who we now are as a body in Christ is is a beautiful thing. And Paul goes on to talk about this more in, in verse 15. He says that the aim of Christ was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace for all of his people. And in one body to reconcile both the Jew and the Gentile, to God through the cross. You see, the cross is the defining symbol of the Christian life. The cross is what unites us. The cross is what brings us together. Because we all know what we once were, but we are not that any longer. We know what we now are. And what we are, Paul goes on to say, is we are a people united in Christ. We are God's people. And in him, verse 21, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. Verse 22, and in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now to understand this verse, we just got to quickly just revisit the Old Testament. I know you could all answer the question, Properly, if I asked you today, where is God today? You know, where is his temple? And you would say, ah, his temple's inside me. God lives inside me. Correct. But let's just think for a moment. Let's go back to what that looked like in the Old Testament. Think about the, the old temple. Think about outside its walls. Think about the court of the Gentiles where you could come, even if you weren't a Jew, but no further, Think about then the, the next court on where, where women, Jews, could come, but, but only thus far. In the next court, only men could come into that. In the next court, only priests who were serving there. And then the Holy of Holies, no one could go there. And that was the locus of God's presence. Only one person once a year could go into the Holy of Holies. And even then, with fear and trepidation, a huge ritual of of being cleansed and being made pure to make sure that he could actually stand and serve in the presence of God. That Holy of Holies, the place in which the, the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim on top, which symbolized the throne of God, that's where Israel pictured their God to be present. Where is that Holy of Holies now? Paul says here, in him you too are being built together, all of us. We are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Passion Translation picks up on this and it says, you together as a church have become the Holy of Holies. If somebody said, a non-believer, somebody said, prove to me there's a God, and you'd exhausted all of your apologetics and kind of every good reason for the faith that you could think of, and they said, but show me, show me God is real. Do you know what Scripture says is exhibit A? I know how Paul would answer. He'd say, I know. 
take them to church. Because that's the holy of holies. I am no more present on earth than when I am present with my church. Exhibit A. Showed them my church. Wow. That's, that's God's, God's aim for every church, every local expression of his church worldwide. His aim is very missional, that they would be an exhibit of the glory and the splendor of God. And so we come to a place, I guess, what happens when we get it wrong? Another image often Scripture uses for the church is, is Christ's bride. We can all picture a bride, can't we? We've probably all been to a wedding at some point or another. What do we do when the bride of Christ stumbles? It's been my privilege over many, many years to, to marry many, many couples here at the Vine Baptist. I get a privileged position to kind of stand, you know, sort of front and centre. I can watch the bride coming down the aisle. I can watch the, the face of the groom as his mouth drops open and he starts to dribble. I, can, I see it all. I see everything. And, and I'm in all of the photos too, which is a bit of a pity. But anyway, but I get to watch it firsthand. And I know at times, hot days, like, hey, in March, it can be a, it can be a little bit difficult to stand all that time. I, in my pre-marriage counselling and during the wedding rehearsals, I usually have a little bit of a, bit of a spiel on, you know, please don't faint and, and make sure you wriggle your toes and eat and drink. And some of you have been in bridal parties. Cam, you've heard me say it. And, and, and you know that that's all part of the preparation for it. But sometimes nerves, different things, they can get the best of us, can't they? And I have, every now and again, not often, but I've watched, watched a bride stumble. But more often than not, that bride is linked around the arm of her daddy, her father. And I want to say this of the bride of Christ. So is he. Yes, sometimes the bride can stumble, but she's in very good hands. Our heavenly father has her by the arm and he will not let her her fall. It's a promise. He will not let her fall. Um, a few of us from the staff the other day went to, to hear a conference speaker. His name was Jim Putman, and he, he's written a book called Disciple Shift, and very engaging speaker, had some brilliant stuff to say. But he talked about actually being a pastor's kid, getting a bit hurt by the church and wandering away for many, many years. His dad just continued to disciple him, was able to, to share his faith with him, and, he, and he, came, he came back to faith. But he said, I'll come back to faith, Dad, but I'll have nothing to do with the church. I've seen what they do. And his dad was sort of, all right, that's the next thing to work on. And in sort of a prophetic Nathan-type style one day, he rang him and he said, hey, I've been called to a new church. And he said, oh, yeah. All right, Dad. Cool. And he said, but here's a funny thing. They want nothing to do with your mum. And he said, I, what do you mean, Dad? 
He said, yeah, they've called me to come and serve at the church, but the church want absolutely nothing to do with your mum. They just, yeah, me, they like, but mum, they don't want her. And he was just baffled by this comment because he sort of thought, you know, she's, he described her just, just the most beautiful, wonderful, gentle, spirited person you've ever met. Like, how, this is impossible. How could they like dad and not mum? <laughs> and as he was asking this question, his dad kind of let him have it. And he said, son, that same confusion that you're experiencing right now is the confusion that Jesus experiences when you said, I'll take you, but I will not take your bride. Because his plan is, no matter how badly she stumbles, his plan is always to hold her up, to get her back on her feet and to present her spotless and pure. And in chapter five, Paul tells us exactly how that how that happens. By now, he's moving on, actually, to a little bit of a description about how husbands should treat their wives. But, but he's looking for a model of, well, what could I use to talk about the kind of love that a husband should have for his wife? And he, he zeroes in on this. Ah, what better model is there than the love that Christ has for his church? And so he says in chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. I've said that the father of the bride, our God, he holds the bride and he will not let her fall. But the groom also has taken part in preparing the bride for this great marriage and marriage banquet that we will all share one day. And we will share that together. And what the groom has done is this. He loved her and he gave himself up for her. He shed his blood and he allowed his body to be broken. To purify the bride, the love of his life. The church. And then he goes on and there's a second part to this too. He says... And by washing her with water through the word. We often think, don't we, of, of baptism as symbolizing that moment that we, as it were, get buried, we die to ourselves, and then we're raised up to, to new life. That is true, and it is a very, very important principle to bear out. But there is another aspect to baptism as well. And the Jews very much understood this. It was about being cleansed and being washed from your sin. And so baptism, water, had to do with cleansing and washing. And that's, a, that's something that Christ, of course, does for us. He washes us and cleanses us and purifies us. Indeed, it is as if we have died and, and now he's raised up a whole new us, for sure. But here is his promise to continue that sanctifying work in all of our lives through the word of God. Through the word, he will continue to wash us and cleanse us. He says this also in John 15, but you were clean because I have spoken this word to you. We are cleaned and washed through the word of God by receiving the word of God into our lives. Believing it, putting it into practice. That also washes us and cleanses us. That's also what he does for his body. So back to the question, what do we do when the bride stumbles? We come back to 
these two fundamentals. We put confidence, we put our hope in the fact that that God has promised she will not fail, she will not fall. And Christ himself, the groom, has given us two symbols to remind us of the work that he has done to redeem his church. And we're going to celebrate that now. Um, in a moment, I'll pray and we'll have a couple of people just, just stationed at the, at the front here. Um, band will play for a little bit in the background. Please just come forward. Take the two emblems. Take them back to your seat. Think about what it is that Christ has done for you. Think about what you were. Think about what you are. Think about what we are. And to celebrate what we are together, the unity that comes through Christ Jesus, hold the cup, keep the cup, and we're actually going to make a declaration and drink that together in in just a short time. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you so much for your word and for your promises. Thank you for allowing us to have a little bit of a reflection on what we were without you. It wasn't pretty. It really isn't. It's not a place we long to go, but, but when we go to that place, we're filled once more with gratitude for all that you have done for us. Oh, Jesus, we just want to say thank you. We want to say thank you. For in that action, we have received an outpouring of grace. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves. Grace. What a beautiful thing. This is a grace meal. You have poured out your grace upon us. Continue to do that, we pray, Lord Jesus. Lead us as we take this time to reflect on your goodness to each of us now. This is the defining moment. This defines what we now are in Christ Jesus. Help us to celebrate fittingly together now. Amen.